Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. On today's show, we will be looking at the legendary news anchor, Walter Cronkite. Walter Leland Cronkite Jr. was born in St. Joseph, Missouri in 1916, with the family moving to Houston, Texas in 1927. Walter was a journalist from a young age, and worked on the school newspaper in both middle and high school. After leaving school, he studied political science at the University of Texas in Austin, while also working at the Daily Texan newspaper. In 1935, he dropped out of college to concentrate on his budding journalism career. Around this time, he started his broadcasting career as a radio announcer for WKY in Oklahoma City, before moving on to KCMO Kansas City as a sports broadcaster. While in Kansas, Cronkite joined the United Press International, and it would be with them that Cronkite made a name for himself as a reporter in the Second World War covering battles in North Africa and Europe. It was while in London during World War II that he first met CBS radio broadcaster Edward Murrow, with Murrow and CBS offering Cronkite a job that was initially accepted before United Press gave Cronkite a wage increase and thus keeping Cronkite at United Press. It has been speculated that this change of mind by Cronkite was the source of permanent friction between the two men. After the war, Cronkite covered the Nuremberg trials and served as the United Press main reporter in Moscow from 1946 to 1948. He then returned to America in 1948 and was hired as a radio newscaster for KMBC, a CBS affiliate in Kansas City. In 1950, Cronkite got his start on television, hosting a late evening news recap on a CBS-owned station in Washington, D.C., Throughout the next decade, Cronkite presented a wide variety of shows for CBS, from the Democratic and Republican National Conventions to the historical show You Are There and the 1960 Winter Olympics. In 1962, Cronkite succeeded Douglas Edwards as anchorman of the CBS nightly feature newscast. During his time as CBS anchor, Cronkite covered many historical moments, including the assassination of President Kennedy, the Vietnam War and the moon landing. Cronkite became the most trusted face on television, with his catchphrase, that's the way it is, being used to sign off every show until his retirement from the role of CBS anchor in 1981 at the age of 65. After leaving the role of anchor, Cronkite continued to work in television as a special correspondent for a number of networks, as well as doing documentaries for PBS. In 1981, President Jimmy Carter awarded Cronkite the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Cronkite died in 2009 at the age of 92, leaving a legacy unlike any other American broadcaster. Speaking after his death, then-President Barack Obama called Walter Cronkite a voice of certainty in a world that was growing more and more uncertain. Okay, so Toby, do you want to kick us off and maybe um, delve a little bit deeper into Cronkite's early years and World War II? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, I have to say that Cronkite was almost like a a sort of prodigy newsman like he he when he was nine years old he was a paper boy for the kansas city star and um famously just after the great war when warren g harden died there was a newspaper that was going around and cronkite told everyone to look you know this is the last time you're going to see a picture of warren g harden but it was just this 
and it was obviously wrong because you could find other pictures of, of Harding, but it just it just goes to show you like he was he was a newsman like down to his socks and 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 he it's just the thing he loved the thing he always wanted to do. Obviously, his parents were, were were dentists, so it gave him the opportunity to do that. And he dropped out of uh, university in 1935 and entered a broadcasting career in Oklahoma, eventually joining UP in, in 1937. And then he goes off to the war as a reporter. He initially, actually, he wanted to fight for um the the u.s army especially to protect the dutch because mm-hmm. his family background is in in holland but he uh talked to a doctor and, and the doctor found that that he couldn't dis- discern red from green so because of that he was not allowed to to fight instead he went over there as a upi reporter he covered um the north african context especially when the allies were invading north africa he he covered uh, the Blitz. He covered the New- Nuremberg trials. Uh, what one famous story was um, during the attacks um, by the U.S. The Texas uh, infantry in uh, Morocco. What ha- against the, the sort of lackadaisical armies from Vichy France who weren't really want- wanting to fight um, during that attack his broadcast that he sent off to headquarters didn't get there because of the attack. And um, they presumed that Cronkite had died. And it took Cronkite like a whole week to get back to headquarters and to find out that, that he actually he hadn't died and that, that, that he was okay. And even in, you know, in, in, in England, um, when he was covering the, the, the Blitz and when he was covering blockades by the Nazis, on the, the British Isles, General Jim Doolittle made the journalists train as soldiers. So um, they trained as an enlisted man. And um, afterwards, the general said, you know, uh, God help Hitler because we have the, you know, the best trained uh, journalists. Um, he covered the Nuremberg trials uh, famously during the Nuremberg trials. He watched these men. Um, you know, the, the main uh, Nazi cadre of Hitler, um, Goebbels had obviously killed themselves, but he watched some of these men, uh, many of them who'd caused this great destruction all over Europe. And he, and he said that he, had, he felt deeply sickened by these men who still tried to protest that, you know, they were just following orders and after after that, he went to Moscow as a reporter uh, with with his wife uh, Betsy. This was before the relations between uh, the U.S. and the Soviet Union soured, and you know, um, famously, uh, Churchill said, "You know, uh, there's a iron curtain that's been brought down." And um, there, you know, he didn't have access to a fridge. And he, he grew a little bit sullen about his um, future prospects in, in the industry. He had been asked by uh, Edward R. Murrow, you know, and Edward R. Murrow, who became really famous during this period for his, his um, really strong 
anti-Hitler broadcast, his strong broadcast during the Blitz that Queen Elizabeth had given him significant recognition for Edward R. Murrow's Good Night and Good Luck, which he ended his broadcast with, was what Queen Elizabeth actually said at the end of the war to the, the people, good night and good luck, just to show her gratitude towards Ed, Edward R. Murrow and then the strength that he, he had shown in that period. Murrow wanted um, Cronkite to come to UPI, or no, to come to uh, CBS from UPI at that time. But um, UPI increased Cronkite's salary, and so Cronkite stayed with, with UPI for the moment. Mm-hmm. Once Cronkite comes back to America, he, he he joins a number of uh, Midwestern stations and he becomes the, the Washington correspondent for them. And during that time, he's able to see the, the sort of the early um, sort of fissures of the, the Red Scare with Joseph McCarthy, especially because McCarthy came from the, you know, sort of the Midwest. And he reports that, you know, McCarthy is a scaremongerer and uh, the McCarthy is a fascist, and Eisenhower really takes recognition of Cronkite. So Cronkite got some recognition during the wartime, even though actually a lot of the journalism that he did was more uh, programmatic. A lot of war reporters didn't win uh, awards based on style. They were just delivering the news. He still got some recognition there. Obviously, uh, Arthur Morris saw that he was a good reporter. Eisenhower saw he was a good reporter when he was covering uh, McCarthy. And um, although he wasn't winning the accolades of Edward R. Murrow and um, William Shira at that time, who were, you know, either in Germany or, or, or covering the war as, as major reporters, it, there was a burgeoning of an obviously um, prestigious career that, that, that was arriving. And then eventually in the early 1950s, um, he accepts a, another proposal by Edward R. Murrow to become a CBS reporter actually covering the Korean War. But instead of covering the Korean War, he ends up covering the the news for CBS uh, domestically. Thank you for that, Toby. I I think what's interesting is the more you read about Cronkite's and other journalists of that time, just how involved they were in the reporting of World War II and how kind of on the ground they were for a lot of this. And I, I do wonder just this, not just the, the, the anchor that, you know, the journalists that it would make, make them later on, but I guess the, the impact on them as men as well as much. Yeah. Play. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's always interesting. Like even in this, the Senate and Congress, you know, when you had people who were veterans, they sort of exuded this kind of prestige mm-hmm. politicians just really have today. I mean, Cronkite himself, he would go into the trenches and he would really get into it and, and get information from all of these soldiers during the, t- the times that they they were having. And he met a particular soldier and he said, well, what's your, your name? And the soldier said, you know me, I- I'm your driver. And he's like, oh, oh yeah, of course. Cause like he was so into it that he even forgot that, that, that the person he was covering was his driver. So he was so focused yep. and so ready to throw himself into the, into the mire during um, World War Two. The, sometimes people even thought he was dead. Mm-hmm. It, it shows that the level of um, engagement that these 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 young journalists had at the time, and and they they did um, were able to gain some 
level of status because of the the obvious heroism that they, they showed um at that time absolutely i think it was a 1944 invasion of holland where he was part of the uh the um the glider um basically they, they were uh, a squadron or a large number of troops that were coming in via gliders very bumpy very thin material and um reading it here it does say that the last thing the gliders did was actually glide it sounded as if it was truly a, a horrible turbulent experience to have to go through this and it, it's just another one of those things where these are really dangerous events that you know the they weren't just passing by in sort of uh you know, uh, a car, you know, 100 miles from where the action was going on. For a lot of it, they were in the thick of the action. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very inspiring to, to, to read about that. Um, was it? Ju- sorry, Von, sorry. Was it that operation that they were, there was like a unit of journalists and they were called the Writers 69th or something? Oh, that, that does. That I does think it was that one where, where they had a, a genuine like core of journalists on the ground that, that had their own military name, mm-hmm. um, yep. which is really interesting, right? It, it, and there, I remember this really like fun story about Cronkite. Um, he was on the USS Texas, I believe, in North America, or sorry, North Africa, um, covering Operation Torch. Mm-hmm. And on the way back to Virginia, um, they airlifted him to Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia, before the reporter that was on the USS Massachusetts so that Cronkite's story could be put out first and that he would have the first leading story on Operation Torch. I think that's awesome. (laughs) It's it's very cool. It really is. And, you know, without trying to be too um, sort of sliding doors about this, it it does kind of make you think, you know, one stray bullet or one gust of wind and suddenly Cronkite isn't the most trusted man in the... On American TV, he's uh, just a a journalist who sadly passed away while uh, covering the war. You know. Um, okay, do we want to move on a little bit from that and maybe look at some of his uh, the early uh, television career and kind of what television was was like at that time? I think Vaughn, you did some uh, some research into this. Yeah, speaking of TV, um, <laughs> right? So let's do a little history on tv first and then we can get into Cronkites. so spoken like a true um, historian (laughs) of course let's set the stage um so television technology was i won't do a full history i promise but um scientists started developing it in the late 1800s um it started to become more streamlined in the 20s and were was really starting to be purchased on a commercial level Um, around the 20s then that kind of dropped off a bit in the depression and in world war ii um fdr actually put a a stop on manufacturing televisions in i think april 42 um to focus on the war effort entirely so it was still this kind of like will they won't they is it going to be popular or not kind of um new media source but this really changed during World War II because there was all of this footage coming through. Um, it was in black and white and still kind of grainy of the war. And that 
really got people thinking like maybe people should see this more than just in newspapers and hearing it on radio reports. Um, so in 1946, 0.5% of households had a television for kind of personal use. But by 1954, this kind of explodes and 55.7% of US households had TVs. And then by 1962, 90% of households had at least one TV um, for personal use. So in this decade, post-war towards 1960, there's this absolute kind of shift in the power of broadcasting and media um, the likes of which the U.S. had never really seen before. You could broadcast straight into people's living rooms. So by the mid-60s, people had color sets more commonly. And then by the 70s, most households had at least one color uh, television set. But interestingly enough, um, CBS actually started broadcasting their news programs in color in 1951. Uh, just people couldn't receive it in color until the mid-60s. But, okay, so that brings us back to covering a few things that we've already talked about. So, um, shifting to Cronkite specifically and the kind of news media at the time. So, Murrow, um, he, as Toby said, slandered McCarthy, <laughs> like absolutely destroyed him in his show called See It Now, um, especially in March of 1954, which is a very important time for McCarthy because the um, Army McCarthy hearings were, were happening around that time. And Murrow's report and just absolute lambasting of McCarthy really opened people's eyes to the kind of fear-mongering and just absolutely baseless, stupid, I could, I won't, but I could, um, <laughs> how ridiculous McCarthy was, uh, how his, his red scare was nothing but a scare and it was just absolutely ridiculous. Murrow opened people's eyes to that and that his broadcast and his show on television reaching people on this kind of new political level really changed the game for news media that you could actually influence the public's opinion through television. So enter Cronkite, as we, as Toby said, he also weighed in on McCarthy, but he was, he was kind of burgeoning his own um, career in this time. And when he did move to CBS, um, in 1950, he was hosting a 15-minute late Sunday night kind of weekly wrap-up of the news in Washington, D.C. called Up to the Minute. Um, he went through a number of kind of different shows with CBS that he was hosting, um, two that I think are very interesting. From 1953 to 57, he was hosting a show called You Are There, um, which reenacted historical events as news reports. Um, and he finished every episode of that. He was kind of famous for his taglines at the end of shows. Um, but his tagline at the end of that was, quote, what sort of day was it? A day like all days filled with those events that alter and illuminate our times and you were there. 
And I absolutely love that. I think it's brilliant because this is a way of experiencing history and experiencing news that people mm -hmm. never really could before. And it really brings you into the action and kind of guided along by Walter Cronkite. And I think that is such a, a strong kind of prescient thing for mm -hmm. his career going forward. Like that's foreshadowing if I've ever heard it. Um, um, sorry, I was just going to follow up on, on that one. Fr from your yeah. own point of view, it, it must be really interesting to, to look into this and see how television and media is starting to try and adapt and change and tr try new ideas. And you, you have, you know, a historical show being presented as if you're sort of reporting the news of, of the day as it were. I, I imagine you were, well, we can tell you were very, very into that. And I have to say, I, I was, I thought that was quite an interesting development and quite a interesting thing to learn about, to just see how, how media is starting to get its head around what television can and can't do. Yeah. I, yeah, I find it really fascinating kind of developing history for a general audience in this way. This, mm -hmm. this is a new kind of public engagement that history's never really had. I, I won't get too much into just history as a profession, mm -hmm. but, but history prior to this was very commonly an elitist kind of thing that if you were of a certain class, you kind of had the ability to read all of these stupidly verbose and unnecessarily just complex histories mm -hmm. of various times but this this brings it to non-specialists yep. and that is such an important thing that's what that's what history is for is for everybody um and Cronkite kind of pioneering that is brilliant and he actually had a second show in 1957 called the 20th century where he did that specifically for history of the 20th century as it was happening um, and that was the first kind of docu-series of newsreels and interviews that, that presented historical events, very modern historical events, um, in this kind of modern retrospective way um, for the general public. And that was actually reprised in uh, like a decade later, I think, yeah, 1967, to be the 21st century where Cronkite speculated on the future. And I love that. Like, that's so cool, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it's like they, they did everything they could with their new toy, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, and they nailed it. I, I think like, one, one other thing is that. At this time, TV was kind of looked down upon by um, Edward R. Murrow and the, the Murrow Boys. Uh, TV reports a little bit before Cronkite were a little bit staid. It always seemed like people were reporting from like a closet or something. <laughs> um, and um, I, I think early anchors like Doug Douglas Edwards really struggled news. Like um, Edwards had developed a quite velvety radio voice, but he wasn't really good at ad-libbing on air. He, he stuck stiffly to his scripts. And um, his, his producer, uh, Hewitt, really looked to try to get him to be a little bit more loose, um, a little bit less sort of obsessed with the words on the, on the page. And that's really how uh, Walter Cronkite develops his style because Walter Cronkite, he, he sort of knew the content, but
but he wasn't attached to the words on the paper. He could ad lib. Um, he had this sense that he, you know, you, you got the sense that he was an authority figure. And he also wanted to make these um, broadcasts to be quite informal as well. So that if you um, were in your house, it was a sense that the, the, the person on the screen was someone who was kind of someone you would let into your house because he was informal. He would he would ad lib. He was warm. It was a completely different skill from the skill of the radio broadcasters like Edward R. Murrow, who were much more um, sort of classical in the way they they talked and they, they used more adjectives. They, you know, they, they, they had to do much more work to build a sense of the scene. For Cronkite, it was much more personal. It was much more about his personal charisma and this is something that people were just learning because that the medium had just been, you know, sort of just just been created in a broad sense that, you know, people were having TVs. In, in fact, a lot of the work that Cronkite was doing, he did before he even owned a television. Cronkite didn't own a television mm. when he became a, a an anchor. And and then and, and he was he was someone who was really pioneering a lot of the the techniques that link the audience to this anchorman even the word anchorman was something that that the in the news organizations they they knew about and it was vague but they it wasn't something that had been really established <laughs> until um Cronkite at really at CBS and we'll we'll, we'll... No doubt touch on this later on, but one of the things that I took when I was watching various clips of him, and it kind of comes back to what you were saying, Toby, is not only was he well informed, but he he had a way of drawing you in. He, he kind of almost you kind of almost feel like he's your sort of favorite uncle or something like that. The, the way that yes, he knew his stuff, and from the research um, I've done, it seems Cronkite was like a really hard worker and re- a real study. And you know, the 1960 Olympics when he was covering that, he he learned hundreds of, of names of competitors and various things about them. And, you know, he really put the time into, to, to know his, to know, to know and learn his craft. And I think that as a point that you make, make well there, Toby, about he, he, because he knew his stuff and because he had a certain style about him, he wasn't wed to the page the way that maybe others before him were. Exactly. So that when, when something happened, you know, he wasn't just, kind of looking around looking for answers as it were he was able to be a bit more on his feet and obviously mm. we will come to that bit later on when we know more about the the, the breaking news and the various historical things that, that happened but I, I think that's that's one of the things I've taken from uh, delving a bit more into Cronkite is that as well as being well informed and being hardworking, he had an approachability in, in the way that he he broadcast and communicated and um, maybe that was, if not a first, it was, you know, maybe one of the first to do that on the, the medium of television. And just following on from that, you know, when he's anytime he was covering space, he would be the person who knew the most about the rockets, who knew the most about the engineering. He just he soaked up information before he went on and talked about the topic but he wasn't so attached to the things that he had written about so that he could ad lib about the subject. But Mm -hmm. I think where he really emerges 
is at the 1952 convention uh, between um, the election was between Adelaide Stevenson and um, Eisenhower and the Edward R. Murrow again kind of looked down at conventions. He thought that conventions were just basically advertisements for the different political parties. Um, he, didn't, he didn't really like them. And um, Walter Cronkite was there. In fact, the, 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 the conventions in 1948, they had been um, screened by the, the, the different news channels, CBS and NBC, but the, the leaders at CBS, uh, like uh, William Paley and Sid Mickelson, were, were unsure because they felt that the convention lacked a, a sort of master of ceremonies. And when in 1952, Cronkite took on the convention, became the anchorman, he, he worked for seven hours doing commentary on the conventions. And because he was doing this commentary during the conventions, a lot of people sort of looked at that and saw that this was something new and something exciting and, and that he was able to really depict the goings on at these conventions in a way that no one had done before. So again, he's, he's here at the convention, really innovating, doing things that no one had, no one had done before until that time and really defining the, the medium in that period. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think all of this really points to his kind of natural instincts, his natural journalist instincts, um, and his ability to really connect with the audience, as both of you have said. Um, in the 50s, um, in 1954, he was hosting CBS's The Morning Show, which was in response to NBC's Today Show. Well, it was just called Today then. Um, and ultimately, I think it failed after, like fairly quickly. But on this show, Cronkite was hosting it and he would talk to a little lion puppet. And the, the lion puppet was named Charlemagne with a little pun on Maine. It was adorable. <laughs> um, and he said that this puppet was one of the highlights of his career because um, he said, quote, a puppet can render opinions on people and things that a human commentator would not feel free to utter. I was and am proud of it. End quote. That's and very I think, sweet. Isn't that adorable? I love Cronkite. I think he's an adorable, like you said, Simon, he's like your uncle that's just like super approachable and you just want to listen to him tell war stories. Like, <laughs> he's adorable. He has a little puppet, a little lion puppet. I I'm thinking uh, whether or not if we ever do a video series, we should get you a puppet, Vaughn. I think that's maybe the direction we should move in. Maybe you can. I think I agree. Pick both, pick a, like an animal puppet and pick its name. I think <laughs> you deserve that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would love it. Um, what animal would it be? No, that's for later. <laughs> that, that, that's um, for another day. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think this all points to that that kind of research instinct and and natural instinct rather for connecting with an audience in this new medium that that. As we've said, it's it's brand new. You don't really know what to do with it. And he just took to it so incredibly well and defined what um, electronic news media would be for a long time. Um, there are some accounts that that reliable 
TV journalism died on June 1st, 1980, um, because that's when CNN started, and then died two success- successive deaths on um, <laughs> was it July 15th and October 7th, 1996, because MSNBC and Fox were established those times, um, which is something we can probably talk about later. But I, for the first 30 or so years, it was Cronkite. And that's really, really interesting. So moving on a bit, as we said, um, he covered like everything, Forrest Gump of journalism in the 20th century. Um, He was at the 1960 Winter Olympics. He, uh, he, He was at everything. I think one of the really important things to also note here in talking about the the television and his um, the, the new television media and his kind of grasp on it is that the RCA in the mid 50s or sorry late 50s early 60s start, started defunding NBC the RCA is the radio um, corporation for America who owned NBC at the time they started defunding them from a corporate made decision to stop funding their news programs as much as other media being put out. And that meant that it couldn't compete with CBS. So CBS had this reputation of the most resources, the most accurate, the best anchor being Walter Cronkite. and that really helped his reputation going forward as the most trusted man in America because he was funded by CBS. They they put so much into him to the point that um, he, in 1962, July 23rd, 1962, the first transatlantic live broadcast from the U.S. featured Cronkite as as a symbol of the nation as early as 1962 when he started at the cbs news desk in 1962 so that's crazy (laughs) he's he just he really had this reputation of being the absolute best and everything really worked out for him in the 50s to 60s to point him in that direction and then that led to him covering all of the major events of the 1960s and being the voice of the nation for so long absolutely um just a couple things i wanted to touch on one was that uh, which is quite quite funny to read now and sort of the how we interpret media today compared to maybe how it was interpreted back then but the 1952 Republican National Convention, uh, Walter Cronkite actually bugged the, uh, one of the hotel rooms and mm. uh, a fight between uh, Robert Taft and uh, Dwight Eisenhower for the nomination. And it's kind of one of those funny things to think now that, you know, Cronkite running around putting microphones under things so that he could uh, get, you know, scoops on, on any piece of information. But I wonder how we would feel about that today if the roles, you know, if a Fox News journalist was doing that to, you know, um, Bernie or so, something like that. You know, I, I w- wonder how we would feel. But I, th- I thought that was a, an in- interesting revelation about um, about uh, Cronkite. And then the other yeah. one was that I believe it was um, Cronkite's involvement in the 1960 election was also, um, you know, this was obviously in prior to getting the 
the anchor job in 62, but I believe he was um, involved a fair bit and he actually saw, he kind of looked ahead and saw that the 1960 election was going to be a, a close run thing and got involved with interviewing both Kennedy and Nixon um, ahead of that. And I believe he was also the moderator for the famous 1960 debate, which has kind of lived on as as the one that is uh, sort of the defining moment for um, television um debates i guess the, the the one where i think on the radio that people thought um nixon had won but anyone who watched on television felt jfk had won and although cronkite you know he was just the moderator of that one it, it kind of again it goes back to a very nice uh, uh point you got vaughn of him being the <laughs> the uh forrest gump of uh, sort of 50s and 60s journalism that yeah it was it was indeed uh cronkite who was who was the one moderating that yeah, I think he, I think he was a panelist at the Nixon JFK debate, mm-hmm. and that that's such an interesting point in history that that really changes politics. That people on the radio were like, "Well, Nixon was the best spoken," but if you yeah. watched it, JFK was cool and calm and collected, and he was cracking jokes and like he looked the part. Whereas Nixon was like kind of sweaty and nervous about it, and you like visibly kind of uncomfortable with the whole format. And that's when people were like, oh, we need our presidents to be kind of approachably attractive and, and someone we want to see as the figurehead of the nation. Um, and Sorry. yeah, Cronkite was there too. But I think what you, what you just said about how we would feel about uh, journalists wiretapping people now that brought up for me when Rudy Giuliani butt dialed a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that, to be perfectly honest. I will never forget about that. Didn't <laughs> when also- he, would, he just holds his phone up to the camera and it's like really incriminating shit on the screen. <laughs> there was also the one where he he phoned the wrong politician, so he yes. was going to speak to what he was going to speak to someone about <laughs> one of his dastardly deeds, but he, he got like the wrong name and just started speaking to this other politician instead. Like left a voicemail too, so there was evidence, like. Brilliant. Uh, well, what a brave. <laughs> well done. I, I think um, one of the things that I read was that um, at, at the time it was seen that because people are going to have to be, appear on television, that television was a way for people to sort of um, get a better understanding of um, the sort of the person behind the, the politics, as it were, and the, anyone who was kind of phony would be kind of made to be seen to be phony on television. And so it wasn't a kind of a, a place to hide for for them if they weren't um, genuine in, in the way that they were, you know, speaking their politics or, or, or being, a, being a human. And it was kind of seen that television would be a way of improving the politician, as it were. And it's funny, that's obviously, well, certainly not how I think of how television has changed politics. And you think that more now has been people can kind of be like the slick willy bill clinton you know um smile for the camera and you know play a saxophone and actually he can just get away with being you know doing sleazy things as long as it's off camera as it were and that the politician maybe evolved uh, as a as a response to television it's not so much that they got cleaner it's just they got better at hiding their dirt as it were yeah uh, well, Cron- cronkite himself was someone in the early days who trained politicians for um, for the screen and obviously Cronkite had developed this kind of 
charisma on television. But even Cronkite himself, before he becomes, you know, the most trusted man uh, in America, he has to deal with competitors at NBC like Chet Huntley and David Brinkley, who arrived as more fresh. They had on-air chemistry and they were funny. And so like Cronkite's more straight news already in the mid-1950s was seen as a little bit stayed, a little bit old. And um, in 1956, when the, the convention happens and Chet Huntley and David Brinkley were, you know, cracking jokes and even being a little bit more approachable and in some ways more uh, editorial than um, Cronkite, Cronkite was put under some pressure because it wasn't NBC that was, you know, the, the head of the, the, the TV ratings at, at that time. So it again, it sort of suggests that although Cronkite did sort of um, create, innovate and create the medium uh, with the help of his producers, that already um, some people were going even further, which put stress on what Cronkite was doing. And I think as we go into the, 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 the politics of Cronkite, we, could, we, can, we can really see that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have a, a bit more going through the 60s before we jump on his politics, if you guys want to. Yeah, absolutely. Because we want to go through the 60s, because I, I, one of the defining moments of Concrete's career is delivering the news off, off the jet death of, of President Kennedy. But um, Vaughn, if you want to just continue in your, your own time, as it were. Yes. Well, yeah, let's pick up with, with JFK. So that broadcast... Um, it was the first kind of real breaking news alert in live television journalism that mm. that had to come through and it interrupted um, As the World Turns, which was a soap opera on CBS. And there was just this kind of like, st like still screen, just a title card that said CBS breaking news or something similar mm. to that. Um, and a voiceover that said that shots rang out in Daly Plaza in Dallas um, where the president was and then just went back to the show and people were like what the hell was that and then about 40 minutes to an hour later when the the cameras were actually up and running because it took a long time for cameras to warm up to to have that and after JFK all newsrooms um, the main newsrooms still to this day have a live camera running at all times in case mm -hmm. there is breaking news because they were delayed in getting the news out about JFK. Fascinating. So, so once Cronkite is on air, they cut back to him and he has to give the news that JFK was shot and died. And it's a surreal moment even now to to watch him giving this this response or this uh this report he takes his glasses off and you can see the emotion in him as he's saying that the president had been struck and he died at, at 1 30 uh central time or yeah and he kind of like he, his voice cracks a little bit and if you watch the the video it's available everywhere online and he, there are um, interviews with him 
years later recounting it and he says like I really had to fight back the tears in that moment you're you're reading the words but until you get to the actual word has died it yep. doesn't hit you as a person you're doing your job up until that point and then you say it and you break and it's just this this heartbreaking kind of display. I can't imagine what it was like for people to watch that live. And that's part of so many people's public memory of JFK's assassination. There's that, that whole thing about where were you when JFK was shot for probably millions of people. It was watching Walter Cronkite tell them. And that is something that the only comparison I have for that is 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I will always remember where I was. I was only seven years old at 9-11, but I know exactly what happened and I can piece it together. So like for, for that humanizing moment with Cronkite having to figure out how to deliver this news for the very first time in human history, really, something so powerful for the nation and personal to him, it just, it's, it's powerful. It's really powerful. And I would really encourage anyone to watch that that clip of it. It's only about a minute long. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know Uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th president of the United States. Uh, Absolutely. And one one of the things which, you know, as you say, Vaughn, he takes off his glasses and he, it it feels like, again, I go back to the analogy of a family member sort of sitting you down and breaking news to you. You know, it, it doesn't feel like someone as Toby says, you know, reading a piece of paper into a television camera, you know, it, it, it's, it's someone who knows the story and knows the news that you don't know yet. And it's explaining to you and, you know, your loved mm-hmm. ones and your neighbors, just what has happened. And there is a, there's a break in his voice when he tries to compose himself and he tries to speak. And it's a, it's a very human moment. And I think one, one of the things that we see time and time again with Cronkite is, he was very, most most of the time, we will we'll touch on Vietnam a little bit later, most of the time, you know, he tried to stay out the politics of it when he was reporting and, you know, tr- tried tried to make the, the viewer informed without necessarily editor, editorizing, you know, too much. But mm-hmm. he was able in this to give you the, the news and also give a human face to it. And it's... It really does strike as one of the defining moments of television in the, or even just media in the 20th century. And obviously this is not his intention and it's just the way it played out. But I also think it sort of pocketed it goodwill to him kind of going forward. You know, people were able to understand that if there were events like this to happen in the future, at least we have Walter Cronkite to break it to us as it were. And um, I think that that's, from my research from my watching the clips that that really feels like that's a a big moment in television and of course his career where we see okay these things are going to happen but we have someone like walter cronkite to break it to us 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that, that human element, I think it's, it's really important that, as you say, he, he kept the politics out of it, but he didn't keep the human out of it. Mm-hmm. And he allowed room for emotion where emotion was due like that moment. Um, and two weeks later, he, they had, they had covered JFK relentlessly on the news and what this meant for the world and everything, um, the Cold War and all of it. Um, and two weeks uh, or a couple weeks after December 10th, 1963, he decided that the, the the U.S. that that people needed a bit of positivity because it had been doom and gloom since the 22nd of November, um, and he decided to run a five-minute clip of the Beatles and their popularity in England, and how kind of strange this this boy band was, and why they why were they so popular? And it, the clip finished with um them singing she loves you and this is such a forrest gump moment because the beatles didn't mean anything in the u.s really Mm -hmm. um ed sullivan had already booked them for the following february but he didn't really know much about them he just booked this band and when he saw it on the the evening news he was like oh my god this might actually be a thing and he contacted cronkite and he's like tell me everything you know about the beatles uh, i actually think he called them the bug boys um <laughs> and and cronkite told him what he knew about the beatles and ed sullivan decided to really feature the beatles when they got to the states and over those those next few months from december to february um the the beatles arrived in the us on february 4th 1964 and on the 10th, I believe, was their um, debut on the Ed Sullivan show. So for those couple months, they, they really campaigned hard to get Beatles singles on the radio and, and really ramp up American excitement for the Beatles because Ed Sullivan saw them on Walter Cronkite's um, Evening News or CBS's Evening News. Mm-hmm. And that's... Yes. <laughs> That's absurd, right? That that Cronkite is is partly responsible for Beatles mania in the U.S. and ushering in this this new wave of culture. The he's yeah. If it was a film, you wouldn't buy it, as it were. You know, it's like yeah. He's had too many things. Like right, you can either have the JFK assassination or you can have Breaking the Beatles. You can't have both. Yeah, and within two weeks. Come on, man. That's not fair. Um, NBC's struggling. But yeah, so so he he just decided that this is what people needed in the moment was a bit of positivity. And that changed American culture, especially American teenage culture, for a very long time for something that teenagers weren't watching. Like that's it's great. I think it's great. So yeah, after after Beatles Mania, um in 64, he sat down with Eisenhower and did a special called D-Day Plus 20 and interviewed interviewed Eisenhower about World War II and specifically D-Day. Um, and that was not necessarily the first interview with a, a military person, but that 
was a powerful special that a lot of people remembered as, again, so much of Cronkite is in the public memory of how people remember the 60s because it's his voice that is guiding you through it like he did on those history programs in the 50s, just guiding you through history and telling you this is how it was and you were there. And he did it again with with D-Day um, and and Eisenhower and brought this into a new generation two decades later for a younger audience to actually understand what World War II was. So he's responsible two decades later for maintaining the kind of perception of World War II and American culture and American patriotism as this is something we can be proud of, um, which is very important during the Cold War, especially in 64, when we just had so many crises, Bay of Pigs and um, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, JFK's assassination, and such a turbulent decade as the 60s, having this calming voice saying the, that you're allowed to be proud of America is, is really iconic and necessary, I think, for people struggling with their national identity um, with the starting to escalate massively Vietnam War, all of that sort of stuff. Um, moving forward a little bit, just to cover some things and then we'll probably loop back. He, as, as Toby said, covered the moon landing. Um, during that report, uh, July 20th of 1969, during that report, he was so excited to be covering space news that he was on camera rubbing his hands together and said, whoo boy, like he was so excited <laughs> to be talking about the moon. Um, he covered MLK's assassination. He covered later John Lennon's assassination in, in 1980. Um, he was everywhere. He, he even participated in Nixon's 1972 visit to China. Just God. Imagine, imagine being there with those two. That's, that's the dream. <laughs> it's a dream for sure. It's, it's, it's the singular dream that humanity all has. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I could, I could do this for hours, just listing events that Cronkite was at because it's just all of American history in the, the 20th century, especially. I am slightly year. worried that as, as a result of this, Vaughn is going to get like a master's or a PhD in, in uh, Cronkite or something like that. <laughs> Actually, maybe another master's is what I need. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I do need it. I can, I can map Cronkite onto Forrest Gump and say, just <laughs> Photoshop him into all of the stills from, photo, from Forrest Gump. Say Cronkite was also there. It's not just Tom. I was going to ask, hey. oh, sorry, I was just to run this off. I was going to say, was there any way that you could um, bring together It's a Wonderful Life and its central character and uh, Walter Cronkite, but maybe that would put us down too much for rabbit hole. Wait, wait, I want to do it. Um, come back to me. I'll think, <laughs> I'll think about something. Yes. Come back to me. <laughs> Right. Did sorry, I, I did interrupt it. Did you want to circle back to Vietnam now or did you want to discuss other things before we get there? I'm I'm good if we go on to Vietnam. Right, okay. So Vietnam, uh, obviously the, the war's going on during the sixties. Right, right. Can we can we talk about his politics before Vietnam? Yeah, if if that's what we wish. Um uh Toby, do you have thoughts on on the politics of um Walter Cronkite? 
Well, I would say that Cronkite, he was considered to be the archetypal centrist by many people, simply because of uh, the way the, the fairness doctrine worked. Um, CBS um, leaders like William Paley worked to try to make the Cronkite broadcaster seem quite neutral. Um, if they had um, brought on a opinion they would be forced by law to bring in a different opinion uh, when Cronkite covered the 1952 um, convention people in the um, messages to CBS some people were angry with Cronkite because they thought he supported Adelaide Stevenson and other people were angry with Cronkite because they thought he supported Eisenhower and this was quite different from um, the the work of Edward R. Murrow because Murrow was attached to the ACLU. Murrow was considered to be quite a um, a liberal and a liberal who even during the Red Scare who protected many of the other journalists who were on lists for McCarthy and he came out quite strongly against McCarthy in in um, radio and TV broadcast Cronkite was considered by many people to be in the center but the, but I think one of the interesting things about Cronkite is that Cronkite's career sort of covers the the fracturing of the American um, consensus and and the way people viewed um, television because you know um, Cronkite is coming from his sort of um, Midwestern and Washington background and he's covering the South and he's covering things like the I have a dream speech um, even when um, MLK died he called them the, the, the apostle of the civil civil rights movement and Cronkite declared himself that um, that his broadcasts in the South were to put a light on the old and strange um, confederacy so he, he was, he did consider many of the broadcasts that he did as an attempt to really capture the fracturing of that white supremacist um, world that did exist there. And also um, Cronkite was not well liked by Goldwater. I mean, Goldwater thought that Cronkite hated him and Cronkite did dislike him. Cronkite thought that Goldwater was a fascist. Cronkite thought that Gold, actually Goldwater's campaign was was secured and situated in racism. And um, Goldwater would always complain to CBS um, people that, that, that Cronkite was against him. And um, one of the other big things about Cronkite's uh, politics is that into the 1970s, Cronkite would start having difficulties with um, people in the Nixon White House because Nixon started to really tackle the, the news media, NBC and CBS quite head on at that time. And so the once known as, you know, the, um, the, the, the most trusted voice uh, on on television would start to become slowly and surely into a more political 
figure in the nation than he had been previously. For example, he, he, he had a lot of difficulty having George Wallace on C CBS at the time. Instead of covering Wallace in, in 68, he wanted to do a lot of the Apollo uh, moon landings. He wanted, uh, he wanted to cover the Apollo space missions from 7 to 11, which he, which he did. And, he, and while the country was having difficulty in 1968, especially with the convention, uh, Dan Rather was assaulted on the con convention floor. Um, Cronkite complained about the, the violence that he was seeing, but he was also complaining about um, Mayor Daley. And, and Cronkite at that time, although he was seen as a, as a, you know, someone who was a liberal, someone who was putting a searchlight on the Confederacy, he did really want to kind of escape from a lot of the political fracturing that was happening in, in, in the country. Even Cronkite's own children, um, Kathy Cronkite, for example, was actually part of the anti-war movement in, uh, in, against the Vietnam War. Cronkite and Betsy Cronkite would have quite, you know, um, angry conversations with their, their children about the war at, at that time. So Cronkite was more of a centrist. He was, you know, he was pro-civil rights. He supported... Um, uh, Johnson's Medicare and Medicaid uh, le legislation. But in the early period, um, when it came to Vietnam, he, he did support the, the, the American war effort. But still, even before this, Cronkite is getting into out of broadcasting, you know, skirmishes with some politicians because people think that Cronkite was a little bit too chummy with the, the Kennedy administration, too chummy with the public relations people of the Kennedy administration, too chummy with um, Lyndon Johnson, for example. In many ways, this was happening off camera, but it was seeping a little bit into Cronkite's broadcast, and that was being re received quite resentfully by um, people like Goldwater, uh, Cronkite famously said about Goldwater that actually once um, JFK had died, that Goldwater had his response was um, the the Goldwater's response was was, was something like um, like he 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 wasn't ready to answer the question at, at the time that he had no comment on the on on the on the question of of Kennedy's death, which made um, Goldwater seem insensitive and. Uh, on the broadcast, Cronkite did depict Goldwater as someone who would, um, you know, cause uh, a nuclear war in, in the Vietnam uh, skirmish, which was, which in some ways was, was again, emphasizing that Cronkite was a centrist. But clearly, Cronkite and Goldwater did not like each other. Cronkite was depicting Goldwater in a negative light. And Goldwater was complaining to um, CBS officials like William Paley that, you know, like, we don't like Cronkite. And that would have an effect on not only Cronkite, but I think broadly in the fracturing of the American consensus and the fracturing of the American media consensus later in the future 
where people like Chuck Colson in the Nixon administration are looking at Cronkite's broadcasts, his actual broadcasts, and not finding necessarily anything that would situate him on the left or the right, but are really digging into Cronkite and actually attacking CBS into the 1970s. So it's in the, the 1950s, you have this sort of uh, almost like this heavenly period of Cronkite emerging, Cronkite becoming the father of the nation, into the JFK assassination, Cronkite taking off his glasses, Cronkite empathizing with, the, with, with people. And then once the country starts fracturing, Cronkite's own position as the most trusted man in America, even though it, it, it holds on and it is expanded in many ways by the Vietnam War, the fractures of the American consensus start to affect the way even Cronkite is being perceived by uh, the wider American public. That probably gives us some pause for thought then, just as we're about to move into um, Vietnam. Um, so do we want to do we want to move into that now? Have we got anything more on this politics? No, I think we should probably move into Vietnam. Okay, so um, my understanding is that it was 1968 when Walter Cronkite uh, delivered, uh, well, a special report um, and then uh, a piece to camera at the end, um, basically confirming that, or in his opinion, that the war could not be won and that um, America would need to um, seek terms with the Vietnamese, not as victors, but as people who had tried their best to uh, uphold democracy. And what what famously came out of this is that um, uh, Lyndon Johnson said that if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost Middle America. And I think it was just about a month later where uh, LBJ announced that he would not be running for re-election. And although it's not confirmed that this was, you know, the key event in, in LBJ not running, it does seem as if it was at least one of the straws that, that broke the camel's back, as it were. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. Do either of you guys have some some thoughts or some more input into what exactly happened with that um, special report and Cronkite speaking out against the Vietnam War? Well, Cronkite in the beginning with the Vietnam War, like I said, with with his own children, Cronkite supported the, the Vietnam effort. He he saw Vietnam in many ways like he saw World War Two, which he had obviously taken a, a, a quite um, important and physical part in himself. And he, and he thought that the, the reporter's job in the Vietnam conflict was to assist as they had assisted in World War II um, with the war effort. And uh, Cronkite, obviously, he had a good relationship with, with, with Lyndon Johnson. Um, many people were even suspicious of the relationship that Cronkite had de- developed with, um, with, with Lyndon Johnson. But Cronkite then went to Vietnam. And I think um, once he starts going into Vietnam, and speaking with the 
the journalists in Vietnam, he finds out that the 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 conflict is actually much more fracturous than he had had thought. He 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 talks to General Westmoreland, and Westmoreland, who had um, done great things in the past, but what Westmoreland gives Cronkite a, a rosier picture than Cronkite even is seeing in Vietnam him, himself. Um, even when on his way to Vietnam, uh, Cronkite is with a, a stewardess. And um, and once he gets to Vietnam, he reads in the newspaper that the that one of the stewardesses was a spy. So everything he kind of thought about um, the conflict you know, when he thought that the, the conflict had this sort of um, black and white view, it, it it just started to gray. And so, but things really, really changed um, with the with the Tate offensive. I think Vietnam is a really, really interesting case study in media history. Um, and as you were just talking, Toby, it, it made me think that that like you said earlier, he was originally supposed to be a correspondent in um, the Korean War, but he stayed to cover domestic politics in DC in 51. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if Vietnam would have, if things would have been different had Cronkite covered the Korean War, because to condense this a bit, um, the Korean War was kind of a foreshadowing of Vietnam in some of the military tactics used and the, the mentality and justifications for the war that, that were put across by the US. And a lot of people who were familiar with the Korean War at the time started to realize and have this new kind of political um, or public consciousness about war that we're no longer fighting the kind of the the honorable fight of World War II and that moving into the Cold War, it's no longer men on the battlefield fighting for American values and, and freedom and all that jazz. It's covert operations and it's kind of backhanded espionage and that's taking such a, a bigger role in the U.S. military. It's kind of the end of, of um, the victory mentality of World War II and the start of this, this new kind of military tactic that is essentially why the Cold War is a cold war and not a hot war um, in, in public memory because everything was kind of happening in dark rooms and behind computer screens, very early ones. Um, and I wonder if Cronkite had been there during the Korean War, if his, if, if his perceptions would have changed because at the start of the Vietnam War, he was seeing it as a kind of continuation of World War II that the US is still this, this kind of honorable powerhouse almost. And, and that what... starts to change when he sees the actual realities of it. and. And as I said earlier, with World War II, television started to become 
more important because there was this footage that people felt they should see about World War II. And that takes off, absolutely booms with Vietnam, that, that the war was in your living room and you could not look away from the atrocities happening, that, that you weren't necessarily on the ground, but you had a better idea of what war looked like in the modern world than anyone else ever had apart from the people fighting the war. And that, that definitely is a change in media history that the involvement of the audience is at peak in the 60s and 70s through Vietnam and it affects people as it did with Cronkite, as you say, Toby. So, yeah. Absolutely. And as you said, Vaughn, what, what it meant was that the public relations people who were handling the, the war for, for Lyndon Johnson couldn't just give you the information. Mm-hmm. The, the reporters weren't on just bypassing the public relations people. The, the cameras were, were bypassing the public relations people. So you could get a better sense of what was happening on the ground and bypass the government propaganda in this war, which really started to disintegrate the public support for the war. Public support for the war in 1965 when Cronkite supported the war and when Cronkite was in Vietnam and talked to Westmoreland and people like that was, was, was strong. But it started to disintegrate, as Vaughan said, because of those videos of what was happening in Vietnam. And after the Tate Offensive, Cronkite goes back to Vietnam to have a, a CBS special report. Instead of talking to generals, he, he talks with the actual soldiers. Um, and he, he heads to the Marine um, Corps base in the, in the hill country. And soon Cronkite's own view of this war starts to shift. And, and quickly Cronkite starts to see that in Saigon, in Hue, the anarchy is off the charts. The, 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 even though the, the, the Vietnamese are losing soldiers, I mean, um, you know, it's in some ways, some of the statistics were right. You know, the, the uh, Vietnamese were dying 10, at a rate of 10 to 1. They were dying, but they weren't giving up. They weren't giving up. Um, and it didn't seem like the American uh, effort was, you know, in, in, in order to sort of um, stop communism or in order to stop some sort of um, Asian spread of communism. It really started to seem like this was a, a nationalist uh, conflict. And um, Cronkite started to see that the South Vietnamese didn't really have a stronghold over the people. And he started to see that that, that, that um, American soldiers were dying for nothing. Um, Cronkite op- was operating in Hue and, the, and um, he saw just sort of a lot of difficulty for, for, the, for the Americans. He, he started to disbelieve the, the reports that he was getting from uh, General West, Westmoreland. Um, he talked to Abrams and respectively disagreed with the general's uh, questionable assessment that there, there was going to be um, more reinforcements and the Americans could, could finish the job. And, um, and so he was learning the, the real current situation in Vietnam, which, which really influenced his decision to, and it was a difficult decision because Cronkite was a patriot to actually mm-hmm. 
um, put together a, a, you know, the report on Vietnam and to really go at the um, Americans' war effort. And, and it really did um, anger the, 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 the Johnson administration. I mean, millions of Americans turned in in, in the course of the primetime show. Cronkite made a powerful case that President Johnson was misleading the American public about the dire situation in uh, South Vietnam. Victory wasn't even a blip on, on the horizon. And, and Cronkite, and Cronkite's um, broadcast was mixed. He said that, um, you know, that, that the idea that, you know, we are not having a foothold in the war is just is, is pessimism. Like, it, it, it's not, not true. But the idea that, that we are winning or, or that the victories on the, on the horizon is completely, you know, erroneous. And so Cronkite demonstrated that, that the Americans were really mired in this, in this conflict. And it led to, um, in part, to Lyndon Johnson not only um, reacting to Cronkite's broadcast, but in uh, 1968 declaring that he would not run for re-election. There is some... Um, ambiguity around whether or not Lyndon Johnson actually watched the broadcast, you know, um, and and some ambiguity around whether or not if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the middle of country, America. you know, is a is is apocryphal or 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 or, or not. Um, certainly, the White House. Uh, it, it, it the White House didn't see the broadcast when the broadcast was aired, but certainly um, the members of the White House did see the broadcast. It, it had a rippling effect through uh, the institution, and it further emphasized that uh, Johnson was losing grip on on his presidency and losing grip on the, on the situation. When uh, Lyndon Johnson was interviewed by Walter Cronkite. He did say that, you know, I felt that if I had run in 68, I might have won. But I felt that um, just because of the information I was getting from the country that people were unhappy. Um, there, 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 was a, there was a need for a, a, a new administration. And I was also a sick man at the time. I had medical issues. And so Lyndon Johnson um, told Cronkite that. And it, and it, it was clear that in part, this had had to do with the fact that he had lost the 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 media war. In part, because of uh, CBS and Cronkite's report to, to to the nation at the time. Yeah, and the, the famous I think the famous phrase from that report was "We are mired mired in a stalemate," which kind of succinctly sums up kind of where America was at that time. And also, if you just look at some of the troop levels between 59 and 73 it was 68 which had the the peak of american troops and then after that although 69 and 70 still had huge numbers they drastically started to reduce over the course of the next two or three years um and i think you know it it it's always easy to you know just go oh well this thing happened and then the you know cause and effect and that kind of thing we can't definitively say that Cronkite brought about the end of Vietnam War but I, I think his his reporting was able to uh, shine a light on what the the true state of 
of the war was and how that was being reflected in the the American opinion of the war and how that had changed from you know the, the early days of of this being something which you know patriots got behind to the the end of it where it was you know we just need to get out of this and save the troops and in some ways like Cronkite called the game on the war like mm-hmm. and um because he said it was he basically said it was over on prime time didn't he yeah and the, and the thing about that is that the CBS news producers were in awe of Cronkite and his report it was a refreshingly risky and unexpected and kind of spot on all the network's best Vietnam veterans supported Cronkite's position. They all knew that it was a stalemate. The big surprise, though, was that Cronkite had the temerity to really call the game on television, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, it broke the fairness doctrine mm-hmm. because you could have called uh, General Westmoreland or other Vietnam es- experts from the government on to have a discussion about it but it in some ways Cronkite really injected editorializing into his broadcast which is something that he generally just did not do absolutely um is there anything else we'd like to add on we're kind of past the hour 20 mark on on this right now so is there anything else we'd like to touch upon on the historical side of things um we obviously have a little bit more to go in as far as his career but Kind of, I guess the the fifties and sixties are kind of held up as the the kind of the key Cronkite years, as it were. I think another thing that that and I did touch this on with with the politics is that Vietnam starts to make Cronkite a figure that is political, you know, because I mm-hmm. like I said with the report on Vietnam, Cronkite did editorialize. And then when um, Coretta Scott King had an anti-Vietnam protest, uh, Cronkite called it on television a, a bid for peace in 1969. And in 1969, now you have the Nixon administration. And Cronkite himself thought that Nixon continuing the war was morally disgusting. And so he continued on CBS to show the atrocities in the war, to show that the war was, 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 was too difficult, which meant that the FBI started investigating Cronkite. The FBI unearthed at least one informant in, in CBS who was talking about Cronkite's relationship to Vietnam activists. And the Nixon White House was really going after CBS. Nixon really saw the press at this time as an enemy. And members of the CBS production team, like Daniel Shaw, for example, were listed on Nixon's enemies list. And then in, 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 towards the end of 1969, Spiro Agnew throws a Molotov cocktail on American news. He comes out with a speech that's written by Pat Buchanan, put together in part by by Richard Nixon, declaring that the big networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC are run by liberals, that conservatives and libertarians do not like these networks, do not like the fact that 
these networks editorialize on in against the Vietnam War? Do you not like that the networks editorialize against um, the 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 states' rights in the South? And then the messages start coming to CBS from from right wingers, conservatives, and libertarians supporting Agnew's speech at the time. So the the horrors of uh, the Nixon administration continuing the Vietnam War um, and really meant that Cronkite and members of CBS, members of NBC, members of the other networks really started to pull away from the presidency in a way they hadn't done before, you know. Cronkite personally, he supported um, Eisenhower's, like obviously he respected Eisenhower for, for his achievements. In, in personal terms, he did not share Eisenhower's politics, but he did a documentary with Eisenhower commemorating the war effort. So you could see that Cronkite respected Eisenhower. Um, he had a bumpy relationship with, with, with JFK, but he respected JFK. He really liked Lyndon Johnson. But and so Cronkite sort of existed in this non-political space, this 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 um, liberal consensus as we we've captured before. But into the late sixties, when you when you have the 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 yippies and the anti-war protests, you have the conservative counter-reaction, the the creation of the silent majority. Cronkite's becoming a political figure because the right is really pulling away from these established institutions. And even in, in, the, in the late um, uh, 1960s, there are attacks on, on the fairness doctrine because many people are saying that the fairness doctrine is unconstitutional. There is a, a, um, a Supreme Court case that says that the fairness doctrine is constitutional, but, but says that the FCC needs to set strict guidelines to work out what exactly comes under the fairness doctrine. So already conservatives are chipping away at the fairness doctrine. They're chipping away at this, this almost like Camelot, you know, um, world of Cronkite and these news anchors that they, they had created. And they're really trying to show that these news anchors are liberals. And, and so the, 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 the tension between liberals and conservatives that's happening in the country on, on issues of civil rights, on issues of, um, of uh, personal human rights, on, on, on issues of Vietnam, is really straining Cron- Cronkite's position as almost like the, you know, the uncle of the nation because of what's happening in Vietnam. And, 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 and it leads famously to people like um, Chuck Colson um, looking at Cronkite's broadcasts finding out that Cronkite hadn't really said anything that was too political on his broadcast, but then looking at Cronkite's radio show. And in Cronkite's radio show, Cronkite is taking information from audience members and viewers and then saying, well, you know, um, the, this person says the war is wrong. This person's uh, criticizing Nixon's policy on segregation and using people say, but what Colson is able to identify is a pattern of liberal broadcasting and editorializing by Cronkite on his little radio show that he's not seeing on CBS, which leads to 
the FBI starts starting to, as I said before, to really investigate Cronkite and really changes Cronkite's re- relationship to the presidency and um, to the government. I mean, it's it's happening for 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 everyone at this time. As we see, we're seeing it with with the Washington Post. Cronkite makes a a personal decision to interview Daniel Ellsberg after the Pentagon Papers. He sneaks to see Daniel Ellsberg in his hotel. Um, Cronkite sees as really as a spy mission. Um, Cronkite's producers have their um, have a blindfold put on them, and as they're brought to the Ellsberg's hotel. And um, although the, the Pentagon Papers, as we we covered before, didn't really necessarily affect Nixon. The Nixon administration came really hard and really forcefully down on a lot of the um, Pentagon Papers reveals on the Washington Post, the New York Times, and and on CBS. So again, the the old Camelot of the 1950s is really becoming unstuck in the late 1960s, which is something I didn't necessarily know when I was approaching this t- topic about mm-hmm. Walter Cronkite. I thought I thought Camelot, you know, lasted forever um, from the 1950s and into the 1980s. Cronkite was beloved, but this was not necessarily true at, at the time. Yeah, that's a good point to make, I guess, because he was still involved in the sort of breaking of news and the the way things were unfolding. And I guess that's one of the things I've taken away from this is that it's easy to think of a news anchor as just someone who gets handed a piece of paper that they read to the camera. And with Cronkite, it, you know, he was, although he wasn't editor, editorizing the, you know, the, the way he was speaking to the audience necessarily, he was making decisions on what to cover and how to cover it, as you said, Toby. And um, it's, a, it's selection, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. selection. Like, what are you selecting? What are you putting on the... On yep. your broadcasts. Um, just skipping ahead just a little bit. Um, obviously, Watergate was a, a thing that was happening outside of Cronkite. But one thing I was just reading a, a quote here from CBS News about this. Um, just a, a quick little thing here. CBS News presented a two-part, twenty-two-minute overview of the Watergate scandal in October seventy-two. The first segment was fourteen minutes. The second was eight. The reports are now credited with keeping the story alive and served as a turning point in a case that came to Group America. And then we've got a, a quote here from Ben Bradley, who was the Washington Post editor during the Watergate era. He said, the fact that Cronkite did Watergate at all gave the story a kind of blessing, which is exactly what we needed. You could feel the change overnight. A little more than a week after the Cronkite broadcast, Nixon decisively won his re-election campaign. But those of us following the story felt it. Washington people... People who had followed national stories, a lot of them who had not uh, decided that we were right to change their minds because of Walter. And I guess that kind of comes back to what we were saying, which was by this time, you know, what Walter was telling his audience and what he was telling America carried such weight that even the you know fellow journalists who were covering a story such as the Washington Post, they felt they, you know, they got a boost or they, they needed some um you know confirmation by hearing it come out of out of Cronkite's mouth and you know Watergate is you know separate to to, to um Cronkite in some degree but you can also see it in the quote I've just read there that, that there is some importance 
in the selection that Cronkite is making to to deliver this story. And again, we see that Cronkite and the Nixon administration are really like each other. It's the famous quote about um, Betty uh, Cronkite <laughs> um, being talked to by one of her friends, and she her friend said, "You know, I feel really bad for." Pat Nixon after the um, California election that that the governor election that the Nixon had lost and uh, Betsy says well I, I feel bad for uh, Pat Nixon every night so again you know it's 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 like at the Washington Post there's this clear hatred between the journalists and the Nixon administration because the Nixon administration uh, did not like them they, they considered them to be liberals they considered them to be very much against the, the Nixon administration's policies and mm-hmm. so again you know i mean and, I, and one of the difficulties is that cronkite was kind of also getting it on the other side as well from the left so by 1975 journalists at cbs like daniel shaw accused cronkite of giving nixon too much good co- coverage when he was leaving the white house obviously cbs had covered um, the the Watergate Maya CBS had covered Nixon's res- resignation, but it, they said that they found the Nixon resignation coverage to be too trying to tr- to heal the country, to try to see Nixon off as a as a fallen man, but some sort of American hero because he resigned. And Cronkite kind of grew, grew resentful of of Shaw and um, these these accusations. And again, you you could see that Cronkite's position as a centrist, Cronkite's position as a as this soft liberal who's selecting things for the nation to see on on a number of important issues, but not necessarily editorializing and feeding his position into these broadcasts, is becoming attacked from both the right, who really want uh, uh, their own um, sort of news institutions. And who do not want necessarily want to follow the, the the fairness doctrine, and then the left by people who 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 think he's not going too hard on politicians like Richard Nixon. Yeah, and that's fascinating. With obviously what what falls later, as we've discussed, with the, the rise of right wing media in the decades to follow. Um, is there anything else we'd like to touch upon now? Because I'm aware we're past the hour and a half, and. I suppose from a context point of view, uh, as I mentioned at the top in 1981, um, Cronkite did retire at the age of 65. So this was kind of, you know, we were talking about the mid 70s there. He was sort of coming towards the end of his journey as, a, as I believe the requirement for, um, for CBS employees was to retire at 65. Um, Cronkite did continue um, being a special correspondent and covered some uh, stories and, uh, did some documentaries, but is there anything we'd like to touch on before we move on to kind of the legacy side of things? I think no, I'm that's... good. Right. So, Vaughn, Toby, and I have been talking about doing a Walter Cronkite episode probably for probably longer than we've actually had this podcast running. To be perfectly honest. Um, Toby and I, this was kind of the one that we'd always envisioned that we were going to do. And then we just needed someone to actually, ha- you know, get someone else to join who could do the research. Um, no, that, <laughs> that, that's, that's not true. Uh, uh, 
we, we'd kind of long talked about doing a, an episode on Cronkite and that was kind of one of the, the origins actually of this podcast was finally doing an episode on Cronkite. So Toby and I are very excited to do that. I, I you're obviously aware of who Walter Cronkite was before you did, did, did this episode and did the research for it, but did, I, I'm interested to know how your view on him and how, you know, you see him and how you, your depiction of how America saw him, how, how that has kind of grown and changed over the course of your research. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, this is definitely your Star Wars. Both of you. <laughs> um, but I, I found this really interesting because I, like you said, of, of course, I'm aware of, I was aware of Walter Cronkite just being an American born in the 20th century um living in society (laughs) but (laughs) i never really knew too too much about cronkite um so this was quite illuminating everything about kind of his 50s um influence was really interesting to to read into from my from my perspective because i study the 50s um not necessarily television or news media but Mm -hmm. It's definitely given me some things to think about um, in terms of public public consciousness and trust in in media sources um, and the influence that they have in that period specifically. But that's that's different stuff. Um, Cronkite specifically, yeah, I think he's getting deeper into his character and kind of who he is um, as a person. Also, I worked out who how it works into It's a Wonderful Life, just in case you were wondering. Um, we'll come back to that at the end of the episode. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it this whole time. Um, his his character, though, is is very interesting and intriguing. And I can't stop thinking about him as Forrest Gump. Because mm. I've, I've made the joke before that the evil Forrest Gump is uh, J. Edgar Hoover in <laughs> 20th century American history. Um, <laughs> I was even watching like a Boardwalk Empire and Hoover comes in and that and it's like what this is like the 1920s <laughs> he's always there he's always there uh, specter but but i i didn't really know that there was this other figure like figure of a forrest gum kind of kind of person and a, a fairly good one if not just centrist which isn't good but um <laughs> yeah it's it's been really interesting he was he was really the voice of everything. And again, of course, I knew I've, I've studied Vietnam very closely before um, and through the 60s I've studied. So again, I was aware that he was the voice of JFK's assassination. Um, and he, he was this kind of real, very real part of the decision on for LBJ to not run again. Um, it's, yeah, it's been really fascinating to think about. And then on the flip side, as I said earlier, my my only kind of connection to a a breaking news story that stuck with me is 9-11. So in doing research about Cronkite, I've been thinking about my own kind of relationship with with newscasters. And I am a big fan of of Dan Rather, who who takes over for Walter Cronkite in um, 1981, and he served at the desk until I believe 2004, 2005. Um, so he was he was there for for 24 years, um, which is longer than Cronkite. And it's it's crazy to me that Dan Rather d- isn't held up 
like Walter Cronkite. He he is uh, he has a fan base for sure. I am a fan of Dan Rather. His Twitter is inc- impeccable if you haven't <laughs> visited it. Um, and he's part of my memory of 9-11 delivering that news. But definitely not in a way that Walter Cronkite is, I think. Um, And I think it's also very telling that if you search for coverage of JFK's assassination, Walter Cronkite is the top result. But if you search for Dan Rather with 9-11, there are no actual clips. Um, You really have to dig to find clips of Dan Rather covering 9-11. It's all kind of years later reflecting on it. And I think that's very interesting that, that the public consciousness isn't focused on the actual report anymore because the actual report and the actual newscaster giving the report aren't as important as Cronkite and JFK. If that makes sense. It absolutely does, yeah. Yeah, I think... Yeah, it's been really interesting. Sorry, go on, Toby. Learning about Cronkite, I mean, you could clearly see, like, he um, he was a brave and, like, valiant person who, you know, who, who was a journalist during the war he really cared about a lot of the figures that he he talked about you know there's stories like when rfk died um him and the and the cabbie who drove him when they f- found out about it they both cried and they they you know they cried together and there's also this sense that you know while all this this um political fracturing was happening while dan rather's being assaulted at the convention floor in in 68 that walter cronkite wants to find a way to get the nation to be brought together again and he he does that by you know focusing on the uh, apollo moon landing to try to bring the nation back together again so there was this sort of like fatherly figure that he established for himself i mean he does seem like someone who was a good man although but i think that from my exploration of his politics even though his politics didn't necessarily seep into the broadcast, I did. I do think that he he was an effective with his producer selector of news um, towards, I think, the liberal side of the American consensus at the time. It it it, it is it does seem to, to be clear that he did irritate white supremacists. He did irritate Goldwater. He did irritate Nixon. And that they were gain, gaining that general sense. And I do think that Walter Conkite, you know, although, you know, we talk about the man, we talk about how he innovated in the medium. I think Walter Cronkite really was someone who was a product of the structures around him. He was really mm-hmm. a product of the fairness doctrine from 1949, which said that, you know, for a, for a broadcaster to get and keep a license, you had to have someone to um, give one opinion on on crucial and um, circum- you know uh, consequential issues and and the broadcaster had to had to cover consequential issues but you you also had to get a different perspective on those consequential issues and I think that really um, the, it really caged Cronkite as a broadcaster I think today if he had been covering Donald Trump for example, even though Donald Trump was the president, he probably would have been editorializing about how much he disliked Trump, about his sex scandals, financial scandals, all that. 
he was really a product of how cage CBS was at the time by the fairness doctrine. Um, William Paley, while he was the leader at CBS, had really fought against the the installation of the fairness doctrine in the 1940s, and then um, you know in the in the 1960s there was the the selling of the Pentagon um, documentary that CBS put on the the network, and the FCC really came down on CBS for sort of airing a sort of liberal to left wing documentary on 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 the station. So for me. It's really the structures around Cronkite, the fact that there was an established consensus that you had, you know, the father knows best, Eisenhower, who wasn't really necessarily deeply ideological in his politics. You had um, was Cronkite, who was a liberal, but was was caged in the structure of the fairness doctrine. It meant that Walter Cronkite emerged at this, you know, grand uncle figure when actually despite his talents despite his valiance despite all this personal virtual virtuous qualities he probably would have been you know sort of a, a liberal editorializing journalist you know it, it, like Rachel Maddow today you know instead of the the Walter Cronkite that we came to know who just gave you straight news that, that that's my perspective on, on, on Cronkite that is fascinating. I, I guess I've never actually done the thought experiment to try and place Walter Cronkite in today's media only because he was such a big part of, of shaping what media was in, in the 50s and the 60s. And so I, I, I guess I just I'm, I'm having a hard time sort of taking him out of that, that time period, as it were. But that, that is interesting to think what he might be and how he might cover the news in today's uh, uh, media. That's fascinating. All, all week and through all of this podcast, I've been thinking that Tucker Carlson would call Walter Cronkite a liberal cuck and that Walter Cronkite would absolutely fucking hate Tucker Carlson. He, he would hate. He would yeah, hate. He really he would, would. Hate him. Yeah, he really would. That makes me happy a little bit. Cronkite would be on his radio show, like swearing, uh, you know, about um, yeah. Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. He would. Talking about Matt Gates and, and shit like that. If, if, that's oh, probably because he was a because Cronkite was a person, you know, he was a person placed in a, into a structure that um, allowed him to, you know, be a straight talk neutral journalist. But he was a guy. Mm-hmm. He was just a guy, you know. I like the idea of Cronkite doing podcasting and having to do adverts for, like me undies and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I I want to know how Cronkite would respond to Fox News's cancel culture and all of their like. Dr. Seuss is dead. Like Cronkite, yes. oh, Cronkite's response would just be like, "You're all like fake ass journalists. You can all go home." Like, I I imagine it's probably very similar towards like the end when Roger Ebert had to review films that were just like complete nonsense, and you could just like yes. see the despair in his like, <laughs> his soul left his body, and he's like, "This is not what cinema should be." You know, I imagine, <laughs> <laughs> I imagine probably similar sort of feeling. <laughs> Yeah. And it's interesting because you had all these hagiographies of Cronkite. Simon, you mentioned that com- comment by Ben Carson. Yeah. So I did actually have the comment to read out if you wished. Uh, oh, go on, go on. So Ben Carson goes, I remember growing up, I would, turn on, I would turn the TV on. You would see Walter Cronkite or someone like that, and you could really trust them. Even though he was a left wing radical, you would never know that. So, so there we go. 
political commentary from uh, Ben Carson. And he said, um, what I said about him is actually complimentary. This is the way it should be. Your personal feelings should not enter into the way that you uh, disseminate the information. Well, whose who's fault is that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will... I will Sorry, but but the funny thing is, like, we look back at this era as a sort of golden age, the Camelot of of, of journalism mm-hmm. and, and broadcasting. But what we're not, but with all these hagiographies about Walter Cronkite, obviously he was a great journalist. What we're really looking back at is the is the structure of the media, not really at Cronkite himself. And yep. um, but Ben Ben Carson will be like, this was Walter Cronkite. You know, it was this person who was making this decision to be neutral as yep. a lot of conservatives do when they talk about, you know, the decisions that people make instead of looking at what the structure allowed Cronkite to do. That's a good point. Um, once we finish up, I do actually have two more uh, points just to add to this idea of uh, Walter Cronkite as the uh, Forrest Gump of uh, sort of news and media and of, of our actual reality. Is there anything else we'd like to? So we've got that and we've got Vaughn's uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, bit at the end. Is there anything else we'd like to add or are we kind of happy to, to close the book on this one? Um, Vaughn, yeah. I'd like to say very well done. You haven't sworn in today's episode. I don't know yes, if that's... A... Oh, you did? Did I just miss that? Yeah, yeah I said fucking tar- Tucker Carlson. Oh, I was, I was so busy concentrating on the first hour and a half that I missed the last couple minutes where you... I, think I also said shit at one point. Okay. I'm well, sorry. Good it, effort, Vaughn. I'm sorry for who I am as a person, Simon. We 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 can all agree with that comment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're we want you to be you. We want the most Vaughn you can be, Vaughn. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we do a future episode to do with Boston, we may regret that decision. You will regret that. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, on you go, Vaughn. Oh no, I think I think I'm good on Cronkite. I okay. think he's brilliant and great and I love that he had a little lion puppet. Yes. Oh yeah, so we will have to think about that if we do go back into the the realm of uh, video content to um, mm. maybe get a puppet for you, which I think would be it. <laughs> or um it could be like a a bottle cozy for your wine or something. I don't know. Ooh. Um, yeah. Now so we're thinking. Now we're thinking. So there's just a couple of things I wanted to add to the uh, Forrest Gump side of things. One was that after his wife died, um, the last couple of years of his life, he actually dated Carly Simon's older sister. What? Yes. What? Yes. <laughs> Damn, Cronkite, my man. Yeah, who was like 24 years younger than him, but you know, people. Good on him. People love Cronkite. And then uh, <laughs> the the other one was that uh, Fox News anchor Chris Wallace actually got his first job working for Cronkite and he actually dated uh, Walter's daughter. So there you go. Amazing. I know. You True. coming in with the hot goss. I really <laughs> do. Uh, the fact that I googled uh, Cronkite and a Hollywood Reporter article came up, that, that really did uh, come in handy for me at the end here. <laughs> but uh, we care about why we're here that's why we're bringing the important news to the people (laughs) right talking of important news um shall we let uh von uh go uh, with her uh meandering thoughts on (laughs) it's a wonderful (laughs) life and how that's connected to water cronkite um we should always do that simon um (laughs) 
No, I was, just, I was just thinking that I think he does actually really align with George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, that um, he's not necessarily doing what he wants to be doing, but he's doing what he thinks is right. Um, as Toby had said many times throughout this, he was, he was kind of beholden to the fairness doctrine, and he was a product of the system in which he was, he was working and living, and held back his politics a lot. And I think that really aligns with George Bailey in that neither of them are doing exactly what they want with their lives, um, but they're doing what they know is best for other people and or what they feel is best for other people and what they feel is right for them to be doing in the moment. And both the film and Cronkite's kind of career climax with the this need to kind of do the most right thing that they feel is the most right, regardless of how it impacts them personally. So George in the film is um, about to jump off the bridge to collect his life insurance policy and save the building and loan and, and the townspeople and, and everything kind of radiating out from that, the ripple effect. Um, and Cronkite decides that he needs to step in and editorialize on Vietnam because it's not winnable and it, it is wrong for the nation um, regardless of how that kind of affects him and his reputation of being the fair and trusted news source and both of them kind of realized that their their goodwill that they had they had um, kind of built up over their their lives and career um, are enough to keep them going that 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 didn't end Walter Cronkite's, Cronkite's career by um, editorializing in 68 with, with his Vietnam com commentaries. It, um, it, it, was, it wasn't as disastrous and people did rally. Like he, he did get heat from either side, um, but he still had a fan base and he still held the, the CBS evening news desk for another 12-ish years after that. Yep. Um, so Cronkite is both Forrest Gump and George Bailey. You can at me and we will argue about it. Well, as we've come to establish now, Vaughn, whatever you say is correct. And mm -hmm. I think you have argued this very well. So as thank always, you. thank you for that. Um, <laughs> Vaughn is now very upset that I'm being nice with her. She does not like that. And she yeah, will. Disgusting. <laughs> she will find. Get wrecked, Simon. <laughs> she will, I was gonna say she will find a way to abuse me. Not took less than three seconds. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the subtext of you disliking me has really moved from beyond subtext. I think at this point. Um, okay, shall we end it there before Vaughn gets more uncomfortable with me being nice to her? I. Uh, I'll rest your rest your easy heart, Simon. I feel about you as Cronkite would feel about Tucker Carlson. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I give both of you time to talk as Cronkite would have. Done you did. Well. Thank, thank, thank you. You gave us both rope to, <laughs> to to hang ourselves with. Thank you, Toby. Um, right. Well, I, I guess we should probably uh, close up there. Um, I guess what's kind of interesting from the show's perspective is. Over the last year or so, we've gone very heavy, heavy on the politics 
and we are starting to maybe look towards a bit more of the media side of things which again was, was part of the original uh, idea behind this podcast and uh, obviously this is kind of a, a great a great thing to talk about Walter Cronkite and how kind of news media has has evolved and we will no doubt in the future be discussing other forms of, of media and news media but I, I think it's fair to say that in the coming episodes, we're going to be looking a, a bit more about representation of America on film. Um, and we are scheduled for an episode in a couple of weeks where our first episode is going to be New York on film. And uh, we will be discussing various depictions of uh, New York in the 20 and 21st century. Um, and we will be discussing that and the three of us discussing that and talking about various films. So if you are um, interested in, in New York on film, then... Uh, yeah, p- please feel free to watch as many films in New York as you can prior to us having this conversation. Don't worry, we will no doubt touch on quite a number of films and um, we will try not to be too uh, too heavy with the spoilers. But uh, I think, just quickly to say, I think it's got to be a, a, an interesting pivot for us to, to move more into the the media side of things. And of course, Vaughn, that is uh, a bit of a specialty for you since you are a uh, film historian. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm very excited about this. This whole, this whole series we're doing, I'm really excited getting deeper into to film and uh, public consciousness and depictions and perceptions. Yeah. That's, that's my jam. I love it. It's a jam. I'd also like to clear up the allegations that Vaughn threatened physical violence against Toby and I if we didn't pivot towards the film. That's completely false. <laughs> no, that was only for the Star Wars episode. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, well, Toby, Vaughn, um, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed this one. You're welcome, Simon. Thank you. <laughs> right, from Toby, from Vaughn, and myself, Simon, uh, thank you for listening. Take care, and we'll have another episode for you in the near future. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. This is my last broadcast as the anchor man of the CBS Evening News. For me, it's a moment for which I long have planned, but which nevertheless comes with some sadness. For almost two decades, after all, we've been meeting like this in the evenings, and I'll miss that. But those who have made anything of this departure, I'm afraid, have made too much. This is but a transition, a passing of the baton. A great broadcaster and gentleman, Doug Edwards, preceded me in this job, and another, Dan Rather, will follow. And anyway, the person who sits here is but the most conspicuous member of a superb team of journalists. Writers, reporters, editors, producers, and none of that will change. Furthermore, I'm not even going away. I'll be back from time to time with special news reports and documentaries, and beginning in June, every week with our science program, Universe. Old anchormen, you see, don't fade away. They just keep coming back for more. And that's the way it is. Friday, March 6th, 1981. I'll be away on assignment, and Dan Rather will be sitting in here for the next few years. Good night. This has been the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite.